Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a plenary address by Professor Alan Ford of the University of Nottingham. His paper was entitled Love God and Hate the Pope, Unchanging Protestant Attitudes Towards Catholicism, 1600-2000. to The role of religion uh, in post-Reformation uh, Irish history has unsurprisingly been subject to pretty intense scholarly analysis, sociologists, historians, anthropologists, political scientists... And they've sought to uh, identify the uh, extent to which the division between Catholic and Protestant uh, has shaped and underpinned modern Irish society. In the early modern period, historians have explored uh, and debated about when and why the Protestant Reformation failed, why and how the Catholic Reformation succeeded. In the uh, 19th century, they focused upon the deepening uh, divisions following the Second Reformation and the transformative impact of the devotional revolution, which so effectively consolidated the hold of Roman Catholicism. And in the 20th century, of course, they focused in particular upon the role that religion uh, has played uh, in the violence uh, in Northern Ireland. And of course, as historians face the uh, early uh, 21st century, they may even be faced with the challenge of explaining the role of religion in a post-religious society. Now, assessing the extent to which religion uh, and religious divisions are primary uh, and fundamental, forming part of the bedrock uh, of Irish history, has proved particularly troublesome. For some scholars, uh, for me, religion lies at the heart of the divisions in Ireland. But the way in which religious divisions became intertwined with other ethnic, political, cultural differences have led others to question its primacy, suggesting that religion is more of a a, a marker uh, uh, or a label than a fundamental issue. And it's certainly true that the sheer complexity of identity uh, in Ireland, it's difficult to focus exclusively uh, upon one element which defined the way in which individuals or even groups of people uh, saw themselves. Neither Catholicism uh, nor Protestantism were monolithic. And it's equally true that religion hasn't said the same. It's changed significantly over time, most particularly in the last two decades. Having said all that, what I want to do today is to say that there are two fundamental and consistent elements which developed in the early 17th century and persisted until well into the 20th century, which were instrumental in shaping Protestant attitudes towards Catholics in a consistently uh, hostile way. What I want to say is that religion is uh, a powerful ideology. It's much more than a marker. It's a belief system. It's a, a process of intellectual believing which transforms the way in which people uh, see the world. So what I'm trying to do today is to identify, in a slightly polemical manner, um, the sinews of Protestant anti-Catholicism. And I believe I've found two uh, elements, um, doctrine and apocalyptic. I appreciate, as an audience of historians, um, these are not perhaps two of the most obvious themes you would choose when looking at Irish religious history. There is actually an important point here about where I sit, where I, where I got my job, uh, if you like. Um, I work in a theology uh, department, uh, first in Durham and, and, and now in Nottingham, 
Um, and I am even more bizarrely, I'm a professor of theology who's never got a degree in theology at all. And the answer to the obvious question is that when you're a young academic and you're offered a job, you don't quibble about the title. Um, but being in a theology department means that I'm always uh, acutely aware of the difference between our historian's sense of history as a product of, or how do you put it, contingent action interacting with free will, if you like, accidents, um, and the theologian's assumption that history can also be about God working in history through his grace. Now, the former, the historian, would naturally see doctrine and apocalyptic, these two topics I'm looking at tonight, uh, as, um, as relative, a product of history, changing over time. But for a theologian, they're absolute. Um, they're a product of God's revelation in history. They're God's revealed truth, uh, if you like. Now, we historians, as rational reductionists, which I think we all are, uh, are sometimes rather reluctant to take seriously those people in the past who saw their place in the world and the unfolding of events in divine and especially in apocalyptic terms. What I want to do today is to try to get inside um, the worldview of early modern Irish Protestants and see how their views on doctrine and apocalyptic shaped their views on Catholicism and continued to do so long after many of the initial ideological imperatives had fallen by the wayside. And I want to show how the absolute claims of doctrine and apocalyptic, when translated from the world of theology to history, created certain tensions and difficulties for the Church of Ireland and its relationship with Catholicism. More about that later. What I want to do first is just to sketch the background to the development of Protestant doctrine in Reformation Europe and see how this was adapted and adopted uh, by the Irish Church. Let's explore the development of early modern Protestant doctrine. This was forged by the fierce conflict between Protestant and Catholic in the, the Reformation in the 16th century as they argued over key elements of the faith and laid down uh, their conclusions in creedal statements such as on the Protestant side, the Augsburg Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, and most importantly for the Church of Ireland, the 39 Articles of 1563. Or, on the Catholic side, of course, the Council of Trent, with its many decrees from 1545 to 1563. Now, these, and this is an absolutely key point, these various statements were structured and phrased to make it clear that doctrine was a zero-sum game. Each side believed that it was right and the other side was wrong. Hence the popular feature of many of these uh, confessions, their desire not just to prescribe positively what doctrine was, but to proscribe what doctrine wasn't, uh, describing the erroneous ideas of one's opponents. The very structure of many of the decrees of Trent was binary, with positive statements of Catholic doctrine being followed by a series of canons anathematising specified Protestant positions. Similarly, the 39 Articles, as well as defining positively Protestant doctrine, the basics of sola scriptura, basing doctrine on the Bible, justification by faith, the two divinely ordained sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, also attacked Catholic corruptions as unscriptural. The remaining five Catholic sacraments are not to be counted as such because they were not ordained in Scripture, Article 25. Or, quote, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshipping and adoration, as well of images as of relics, as also the invocation of saints, 
is a fond thing vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God, Article 32. And transubstantiation in Article 28 was rejected as repugnant to the plain words of scripture. And finally, Article 31 condemned popular beliefs about the sacrificial claims of the Catholic Mass as, quote, blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. The academic results of these conflicting confessions was a whole new subject uh, at university uh, level. Um, as the main intellectual endeavour that came to dominate in theology departments across Europe on Protestant and Catholic sides in the century after the Reformation was controversial or polemical authority, which sought to not just prove the truth of your own side's position, but also to damn the errors of your opponents. In Ireland, it took a while for the Reformation to get started. It's only from around 1600 that one can trace the emergence of two distinct intellectually aware and hostile religious denominations in Ireland as each began to produce theological polemic. The 19-year-old usher met the seasoned Jesuit Henry Fitzsimon in a formal public disputation in 1600 uh, in Dublin Castle where he was imprisoned. And I like to see that as the beginning, if you like, of polemical theology uh, in Ireland. The Church of Ireland adopted its first full confession in 1615 and the 39 Articles in 1634 um, and, and was uh, bolstered uh, in its development of a confessional identity by the foundation of Trinity College uh, in 1592 and the import of English clergy who were also trained in Oxford and Cambridge in polemical theology. By 1600, Trinity was producing its first clerical graduates, able to go forth and do battle with the Catholic missionary priests and Jesuits, and Trinity was to provide over the next 370 years the intellectual institutional underpinning for the Church of Ireland's anti-Catholicism. Its first theological professor uh, and leading luminary, uh, intellectual luminary, was of course James Usher, who held the aptly named Chair of Theological Controversy. He and his fellow fellows at Trinity provided a steady diet of sermons, lectures, publications that defended Protestant doctrine and attacked Catholic errors, and they trained their clerical graduates in these skills. Usher's successor as professor, Joshua Hoyle, devoted his daily lectures over a period of 15 years, expounding the Bible verse by verse, one Bible verse per hour-long lecture. Exciting. Um, and his weekly lectures on controversial theology led to his publishing in 1641 a massive 676 page treatise on the real presence, which contained the title of my paper, The Immortal Injunction in the Preface to the Readers, that your duty as a good Protestant was to love God and hate the Pope. Um, it, was, um, it was Usher then who was the dominant uh, intellectual figure uh, in laying down the template, not just for Irish controversial theology, but also for the way in which Irish Protestants saw history and where God had placed them in it. Usher is a terrifying person to study um, because of the sheer range and depth of his learning. Um, you always have that awful sense that anyone working uh, on him is embarrassed by the knowledge that he's twice as learned as you are. Um, our focus today is on two key works published in the 1620s, just as he made the transition from Professor in Trinity to Bishop <laughs> of Meath and then Archbishop of Armagh. The first is his 551-page work uh, in the uh, 19th century edition, 
was that the original edition? I can't remember. Uh, an answer to a challenge made by a Jesuit in Ireland, whereby, wherein the judgment of antiquity in points questioned is truly delivered and the novelty of the now Romish doctrine plainly discovered. This was published in 1624, but republished for polemical purposes as late as 1835. And it constitutes the most comprehensive statement of Irish Protestant anti-Catholic theology. What the Jesuit wanted uh, Usher to do was to demonstrate when the papacy first altered the pure religion that Protestants admitted had existed for the first 500 years and explain how the early church fathers supported Protestantism. Where was Protestantism, in other words, before Luther? Usher covered all the main issues at stake between Protestants and Catholics, the authority of tradition, the authority of the Bible, the real presence in the Eucharist and transubstantiation, confession, the priest's power to forgive sins, purgatory, prayers for the dead, prayers to saints, uh, images, free will and merit uh, and indulgences. What's important is his method methodology. His uh, approach was to take the Bible, rather than the church or tradition, as his sole source of authority for doctrine, and with the help of historical theology to expose the later deviations of the Catholic Church from early biblical purity. Usher therefore foregrounded doctrine in the Bible, the essential Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, and downplayed the role of tradition and papal authority in moving beyond or developing biblical truth. Just to take uh, one example, purgatory. For Catholics, this was the place of suffering where souls of sinners went to atone for their sins before going to heaven. Uh, for Usher, this offended against two of the key Protestant doctrines. Firstly, he claimed it wasn't found in the Bible. Of course, this was his version of the Bible, shorn of the Apocrypha. Uh, and second, the principle that the death of Christ was more than enough to atone for all one's sins. Usher went through the Bible disputing all the claimed references to purgatory and then went on to examine church history to trace the rise of the concept. Firstly, he showed that it was unknown or hardly known uh, amongst the early church fathers, citing a whole series of authors from Cyprian to Augustine. So it showed that they had no idea of a halfway house like purgatory, but thought in simple binary terms of hell and heaven. It was not until the late 6th century in the writings of Pope Gregory I that he finds clear reference to purgatory. And it's not formally confirmed until the high Middle Ages and finally in the Council of Florence in the 15th century. In other words... Usher would strongly have uh, approved uh, of the Jack Lagoff's uh, famous book, The Birth of Purgatory, which shows how purgatory took off as a concept from around about 1100. What this focus on the early church did was it orientated the Irish Protestant view of doctrine firmly towards the past. Protestants knew where they were starting from, the Reformation discovery of key scriptural truths, from there, they went backwards through church history, showing how these truths had been corrupted and demonstrating how errors and abuses had obscured, even replaced them, before arriving at the safe haven of biblical and apostolical validation. This backwards hermeneutic was a classic statement of the Christian golden age, with all the advantages and disadvantages that such formulations brought with them. The early church, with its purity of doctrine and practice, was idealised, and past perfection was harnessed for present needs. A task, as Tom O'Loughlin, my colleague, puts it, is simply performed by isolating those items in the historical record that fits one's ideals and ignoring the rest. The great disadvantage, of course, is that by idealising the distant past, 
and absolutizing doctrine, it diminishes the present by equating change with decline and corruption. It makes any sense of development very difficult to justify. Hence, it made it very difficult for the Church of Ireland to move away from the 39 Articles. This chronological perspective was reinforced by a second um, key ideological element in the Irish Protestant mindset, uh, apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic seems odd to modern-day students, modern-day people, uh, when I talk to them about it. Firstly, what is it? Apocalyptic are those passages in the Bible often phrased in terms of rather bizarre uh, imagery from Revelation, parts of Daniel, Thessalonians, um, which mention things like the four beasts, the four empires, the whore of Babylon, the repetitive imagery of seven vials, seals, trumpets, with their terrifying account of these battles between good and evil, Christ and Antichrist, um, just before the end of the world. Now, to us, um, we, we, we have difficulty uh, in, in understanding, understanding this. Um, if we're going to understand these, what seem to us, bizarre uh, ideas, um, we have to understand that to early modern Protestants, they weren't bizarre at all. They were an essential part of their worldview. We otherwise need to engage in a little bit of historical empathy and get rid of our modern concepts of time and causation in history in order to understand the early modern worldview. Our perspective on time is vast, stretching back hundreds of thousands, millions of geologists, billions of years, uh, and goes on well into the distant uh, future, we hope. To a Protestant uh, living in the 16th century, time was terrifyingly short, compressed. Uh, the Earth was created in 4004 BC. Look up Usher and Google, and he's far more popular than Alan Ford. Uh, you, get, you get hundreds of thousands of references because he is seen as the person who first popularised this. Uh, and the world would only last for about 6,000 years, maybe less of God for, sh- for, for shortened history. So in 1600, you're already living in the last times with less than 400 years left. And history was essentially a battle between the forces of good and evil, light and darkness, Christ and Antichrist. For us, the prophetic imagery of Revelation about the battle between Christ and Antichrist either relates to the time in which it was written. So it's the early Christians with the pagan Roman emperors persecuting them, and they saw that as the battle between Christ and Antichrist. Or, as Augustine did, it shunted safely into the future, the end of the world, some far distant period, uh, a long way away. For early modern Protestants, it related to now. There wasn't a distant future, there was merely a terrifying present. What Luther and the early Protestant reformers had done was to apply the prophecies of Revelation to their own times, to place themselves at the end of history just as the sixth trumpet was sounding. The Reformation was just, was as a result, placed within a sacred history as the beginning of the last days, as the forces of righteousness rose against the corrupt papal antichrist. We also, if we're going to understand their mindset, need to change our view of causation. We take it for granted that things happen as a result of the contingent interaction between human free will and material forces, as I said, we're historians. For Christians in the early 17th century, this was complete nonsense. What happened in history was ultimately the result of the will of God. And you could change the forces of what happened in history by allying yourself with the will of God. This belief in an all-seeing, omniscient God whose absolute power lurked behind the events of history, what this did was it sacralised secular time. And it results in a very different approach to how you view history and your place in it. 
Once you acknowledge that the events of history are a result of God's providence and add to that the fundamental belief that God reveals his will in scripture, then the Bible becomes a key to history, to what's happening in history and above all what's about to happen in history. The historical books of the Bible, the Old Testament, told you how God's will had operated in ancient history. The prophetic and apocalyptic passages invited scholars to identify how these veiled predictions had worked out in more recent times, were working out now and would work out and transpire in the immediate future. Now, this mindset was very common across Protestant Europe. It was an essential part of Protestant identity, explaining why the Reformation had been necessary. And it was used to explain things such as the defeat of the Spanish Armada or the Thirty Years' War. They're all slotted into this Protestant historical apocalyptic matrix. What Usher did was apply it to Ireland. Uh, and here we come to his second publication uh, in 1622 3, Discourse of the Religion Anciently Professed by the Irish and British. What he did was explain how the early Irish church, the Church of St. Patrick, Usher invented the, the Celtic church, this appalling, wishy washy image of the beautiful, ecologically sound, green, feminist Celtic church. Um, what Usher did was um, show how the Church of St. Patrick, well, he was the first to arrogate the Celtic church for present needs, which is what happening in modern times. And what Usher did was show how the Celtic Church basically was ignorant of Rome and its corruptions. Uh, it was pure and Mirabile did too. It was almost Protestant. Um, and what he then went on to go show was that Usher believed that um, the millennium was in the past, that, uh, that Satan had been bound, as Revelation predicted, uh, around the time of the death of Christ. And then around the time of 1000, Satan was released in the form of Antichrist and grew up within the papacy. And lo and behold, what happens in the 11th and 12th centuries in Ireland, Roman influence begins to extend uh, as uh, uh, St. Malachi uh, goes to St. Bernard and to Rome and Roman uh, 1152 sends over the four uh, archiepiscopal pallia. And what happened, what that marked was the anti-Christian corruption uh, of the Irish church necessitating the 16th century reformation. So what Usher had done was provide Irish Protestants with a worldview that spoke precisely uh, to their position. They, like the godly in Revelation, were a small minority upholding Christian truth against the monstrous hordes of, hordes of Babylon who surrounded them on all sides. Whatever their contemporary sufferings, Revelation promised them eventual victory, albeit in the last days of the world. Revelation also encouraged them to adopt a hermeneutic of suspicion when approaching the Catholics and the Catholic Church. Antichrist, the Bible clearly foretold, would deceive many and use lies and deceit to gain the unshakable loyalty of his followers. Protestants were therefore given a biblical justification, not only for distrusting Catholics religiously, politically and socially, but also for despairing of their salvation and conversion. Hence the thunderous response uh, of the Irish bishops in 1626, when Charles I had the temerity to propose a measure of toleration for Irish Catholics, in what I think can be safely called the low point of Irish ecumenism. I love reading this one out. <laughs> The religion of the papists, the Irish bishop said, is superstitious and idolatrous. Their faith and doctrine, erroneous and heretical. Their church in respect of both, apostatical. To give them therefore a toleration or to consent that they might freely exercise their religion and profess their faith and doctrine is a grievous sin, and that in two respects. 
One, it is to make ourselves accessory not only to their superstitions, idolatries and heresies, and in a word to all the abominations of popery, but also, which is a consequence of the former, to the perditions of, of the seduced people which perish in the deluge of the Catholic apostasy. You see why I like reading it. Secondly, to grant them toleration in respect of any money to be given or contribution to be made by them is to set religion for sale and with it the souls of the people. The clearest expression of this fundamentalist apocalyptic mindset in the early Church of Ireland was its Confession of Faith, approved in 1615, which actually contained the statement that the Pope was that man of sin, Antichrist. Um, Though the Irish Articles were in fact replaced in 1634 by the 39 Articles, these two, as we have seen, contained the classic Reformation combination of positive uh, statements of Protestant doctrine and negative comments about Catholic uh, abuses. What I'm arguing then is this period in the 17th century set the pattern uh, for the Church of Ireland. A firm doctrinal stance based on the rejection of papal authority, the return to the early church and the reliance upon scripture alone as the test of doctrinal authority. These truths were propositional. You had to accept the words in which they are written uh, as true. They were, uh, and, and they were contained in the 39 Articles, and they were not negotiable. To compromise on them was to go against divine revelation. And this theological rejection of the Catholic Church was more than just religious. It also had clear political implications. Seen as loyal to the Pope rather than to the British monarch, seen indeed as being enthralled to Antichrist, Irish Catholicism was identified with perfidy, violence and rebellion a feeling reinforced in all these times of crisis in 1641, 89, and so on. This fusion of doctrinal fundamentalism, apocalyptic, a confessional state, and theological and political hostility to Catholicism created a powerful alliance that decisively shaped the attitude of Protestant leaders in Ireland right down to the 20th century. I wouldn't want to leave the impression that all the clergy in the Church of Ireland subscribed uh, to this apocalyptic uh, attitude. Uh, As the Church of Ireland developed, there grew up, of course, more accommodating, less harsh views, which downplayed the apocalyptic millenarianism uh, of Usher and the early Irish Protestants. There was the Via Media approach of Jeremy Taylor, the 17th century Bishop of Down and Connor. Um, There was the... the, uh, the Church of Ireland, the High Church uh, group in the Church of Ireland in the 19th century, uh, and the Trinity academic James Henthorne Todd, who attempted to wean uh, popular Irish Protestantism off its conviction that the Pope was Antichrist, to argue that the prophecies of Revelation related not to past and contemporary history, but to a far distant future. As Todd put it, the Pope Antichrist argument is no doubt an effective weapon with the ignorant or weak-minded who look not beyond the surface and are led away by words rather than things. And yet even with them, the author is persuaded, that is Todd, is persuaded that such arguments have more frequently inflamed unholy passions and nurtured unchristian bigotry than produce rational conviction based on love of truth. Whilst the learned and sober-minded, the serious student of Holy Scripture and history, they have done more to damage the cause of Protestantism than the disputations of 20 Bellarmines. But high churchmen like Todd were viewed uh, with suspicion by most of their colleagues and had little impact upon the visceral anti-Romanism of the 19th century Church of Ireland. It's true that the power of apocalyptic and millennial thinking did decline in the 19th and 20th century in Ireland, but it declined slowly. 
You may remember that it was not till 1988 that the Presbyterian Church uh, of Ireland finally voted down with a sizable minority opposing. Uh, the, it got rid of the uh, statement of belief from the Westminster Confession that the Pope was Antichrist. And even as the power of apocalyptic declined, it was transmuted into concepts such as providentialism or national election, leaving the anti-Catholic framework that it had supported untouched. Nor was anti-Catholicism purely an intellectual exercise confined to theological discussion and learned sermons. It had, through its links with political and ethnic tensions, a popular dimension amongst the Protestant laity. Uh, my uncle Ted, um, long since dead, um, left school at 14, became a commercial traveller for Johnson Brothers, and he would tell me two things. He would tell me that um, the Church of Ireland was the true Church of Ireland and that the Pope was Antichrist. That was in the 19... He was, would have been educated in the 1940s and 50s. Um, if anything, the theological divisions hardened in the 19th century as the Second Reformation spawned a new generation of evangelically-minded clergy and laity who enthusiastically adopted Usher's polemical approach to Catholicism. The late 19th century professor of divinity in Trinity College still sought as one of his main responsibilities to deal in his lectures with the controversy which in this country is most pressing, the controversy with Rome. And popular literature rolled off the Dublin presses. In 1541, Charles Stuart Stanford, a Trinity graduate and prebendary of St. Michael's, published a handbook of the Romish controversy. By 1878, it had sold over 37,000 copies. When you read this, uh, its format reflects exactly uh, Usher's concerns from the 17th century. It was constructed as a refutation, article by article, of Pope Pius IV's um, 1565 Tridentine Creed, the official formulation, if you like, of the Tridentine beliefs. And the range of topics is no different from the early 17th century. Bible, sacraments, tasks of Mary, use of relics, prayer to saints, purgatory. And the methodology, extensive quotation from scripture to prove that these are unscriptural, is still exactly the same. There was even uh, uh, an historical table giving the century in which each of the Roman innovations were first introduced. Nor is the attitude towards the papacy any different. The central purpose of the book is to refute that great system of error. And Stanford confidently states that Rome is the Babylon of the book of Revelation and the Pope Antichrist. Through these kind of books, and particularly through popular catechisms, um, the, these ideas were transmitted to the lay members of the Church of Ireland. You can look here at the Society for Irish Church Missions with its classic 100 texts, uh, first published, uh, well, first used in the 1850s, first published about 1881, uh, and last published in 1966. This sought to restore to Ireland the faith in the purity and simplicity with which it was preached so long ago by St. Patrick. And what it did was provide a, a primer of 100 biblical quotations, all organised, in order to disprove uh, key points of Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. Relations between Catholics and Protestants on doctrinal issues were further uh, uh, strained in the 19th century by the way in which, Catherine, uh, in which Catholic doctrine developed. Well, not just the way that it developed, but the very fact that it developed. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Jesus, confirmed by Pius IX in 1854, and the 1870 Declaration of Papal Infallibility in Defining Doctrine as Part of Divine Revelation, both aroused considerable op opposition within the Church of Ireland. Indeed, they could almost have been designed to irritate, as the Church of Ireland saw them as further proof that the Papal Church had departed from Sola Scriptura and was inventing new doctrinal traditions. 
Here, Trinity came to the fore with that mathematician turned cleric and provost, J.H. Salmon, producing in 1888 what is the most famous text uh, since Usher of Irish anti-Catholic theology, the infallibility of the church. Praised by Archbishop John Gregg, the dominant intellectual figure of the 20th century Church of Ireland, as Dr. Salmon's priceless work, it went through six different editions and was last published in 1954 and remained a required part of the reading list in the School of Divinity in Trinity College, Dublin, until the 1960s. As one senior Church of Ireland cleric recalled in 2001, Salmon's book quickly became an essential adjunct to the Bible, Book of Common Prayer and 39 Articles, an indispensable vade mecum for thinking members of the Church of Ireland, both cleric and lay. To Salmon, the Roman Catholic Church was nothing less than a schismatic one, the Pope having broken communion with more than half of Christendom merely because it will not yield to him an obedience to which he has no just right. He then proceeded to test the historical, scriptural and logical basis of of the papal claim to infallibility before going on to examine the historic claims to supremacy on the basis of Peter, Peter, all were unsurprisingly disproved. One of the features of Salmon's book was that it was addressed not to Roman Catholic leaders, but to members of his own church. This turning inwards was uh, partly a result of the weakening political position of the church as its link to the state was challenged during the 19th century before being cut by established disestablishment in 1870. Um, but now uh, uh, it was also... Um, a, a product of the way that church changed after 1870. Now self-governing, it took great care to ensure that its constitution in its preamble and declaration stated its commitment to the 39 articles. These were the foundation articles, if you like, of the doctrine of the newly independent Church of Ireland. There were numerous books in the uh, first half of the uh, 20th century, right down to the 1950s, restating these basic uh, doctrinal positions uh, of Usher in relation to the Catholic Church. The, the, mo- the last one it was published um, by W.S. Kerr, um, who eventually became Bishop of Down and Dromore from uh, 1944 to 1955, who published a book on the independence of the Celtic Church in Ireland, which you can understand what he's saying there, you can imagine, and in 1915 published a handbook of the papacy. Can you ever get your hands on the handbook of the papacy? Do. This began with the cry, controversy is often foolishly decried, and then proceeded not to decry it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, drawing upon Salmon to expose the falsity of the papal claim to infallibility, uh, and though much of the content is modern, using modern theological uh, developments, the essential thrust is little different from Usher's apocalyptic worldview. The Roman Catholic Church is a false church founded upon lies and deception. That's the consistency, the one thing that I think drives the Protestant Church uh, forward in Ireland and gives it an unshakable belief in its rectitude and makes it very difficult for it to compromise with Catholicism. Um, But, of course, in the middle of the 20th century, we have... um, the interesting development um, of um, a sudden change in relations between the two churches. Uh, From the 1960s on, we have uh, increasingly um, the idea of ecumenism, um, accepting maybe the other church uh, may be a a true church. From a theological perspective, then, in the up to about 1960, doctrine is seen as unchanging and certain, defining the essential truths of the Christian religion in an authoritative way as propositional truths. 
Encapsulated in creeds and confessions, the central doctrines of the faith have to be believed by all Christians if they wish to be, remain within the church. Doctrine cannot be changed, only clarified and possibly developed over time. That's the way the theologians thought. From a secular-minded historian, of course, doctrine appears rather more contingent and accidental. The two main religious divisions in Christian history, the 11th century schism between the East and West and the 16th century Reformation split, produced rival denominations whose confessions diverged on key doctrinal issues, leading to that rather embarrassing position, conflicting versions of doctrinal dogmatic truth. As a result, what to a theologian is part of a seamless divine revelation to mankind seems to the historian rather more accidental. Doctrinal truth becomes a product of historical circumstance and warring factions changing over time. For the churches produced by these schisms, East and West, Catholic and Protestant, this poses a double, pro a double challenge. In times of religious tension, the doctrinal differences and sense of self-righteousness encourage the growth of sectarianism, hostility, even violence, and in the case of Ireland, provide the glue which holds together the bitter sectarian hostility between Protestant and Catholic. But in the more ecumenical age of the later 20th century, there's a different and more delicate problem. How can the Church's historic confessional statements clearly claiming to be in possession of doctrinal truth and declaring, often in inflammatory language, rivals to be erroneous and heretical. How can these statements be accepted as authoritative in an era which seeks to minimise rather than emphasise doctrinal difference? And this is exactly the challenge that the Church of Ireland faced after the 1960s and the, the rise of ecumenism and the rise of the threat of sectarianism in Northern Ireland forced churches on both sides to re-examine their commitment to their age-old creeds. The Church of Ireland sought, uh, as a result, to distance itself uh, from the 39 Articles. As late as 2008, a Catholic priest could still complain in a letter to the Irish Times about the Articles' condemnation of the monstrous blasphemy of the Mass. Protestants tried to explain this away by pointing out that the Articles were merely condemning popular Reformation beliefs about the Mass, but there was no doubt that their content and terminology was a matter of serious concern, even embarrassment to the Church of Ireland. What they did first was they attempted to make a distinction between the language and the doctrine of the 39 Articles. Um, in uh, 1999, um, they uh, made a, uh, the Synod, the Church of Ireland governing body, formally approved a declaration that the historic formula formularies, including the 39 Articles, still defined the faith proclaimed by the Church, but attempted to distance itself from the language in which they are expressed, noting that negative statements towards other Christians should not be seen as representing the spirit of this church today. It regrets that words written in another age and in different contexts should be used in a manner hurtful to or antagonistic towards other Christians. The difficulty, of course, was in identifying precisely what it, is that, what it was that had changed, language and rhetoric or doctrine. Some of the more liberal clergy in the Church of Ireland would happily have dropped the language and the doctrine, the 39 Articles, entirely. In, um, uh, in one interview, the, um, the uh, Archbishop of Dublin, after he retired, uh, Archbishop um, Neil, uh, said that when he had sworn um, 
When he'd assented to the 39 Articles, he'd had his fingers crossed behind his back because he didn't really believe in them. Uh, but when you look at what the Northern Ireland uh, Church of Ireland members say, they say that the, the 39 Articles are still absolutely basic to the Church of Ireland, and anyone who doesn't believe them uh, should be expelled uh, from the Church of Ireland. There is, in other words, still this, this, this tension uh, about them. The Church of Ireland was offered a, a further effort to escape from the 39 Articles in the work of Archic, the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, which began in the 1960s and is still going on today. This was a series of international meetings between Catholics and, 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 and uh, Church of England and Anglican member uh, theologians, which attempted to find a way around the, the Council of Trent uh, and the 39 Articles. Um, and to look beyond them um, and look behind them and go back to scripture and create a consensual theology where Catholics and Protestants could agree on, on issues such as the Eucharist, even on issues such as authority and the authority of the papacy. Um, again, the response of the Church of Ireland has been very interesting to this. Uh, like all attempts at mediation, Archic's work came under immediate criticism uh, from the extremes. Uh, it's not been enthusiastically welcomed uh, by the Sacred Congregation for Doctrine uh, in, the, uh, in Rome, uh, and it's not been uh, welcomed very positively uh, by many uh, of the more fundamentalist members uh, of the Church of Ireland. Um, as a result, the official response of the Church of Ireland to archic statements tends to contain an awkward mixture of partial endorsements, restatement of Reformation principles, and quotation of key Protestant biblical proof texts. These were not helped when Archic tackled um, the most central of issues, the primacy of the papacy. In the gift of authority agreed in 1999, Archic envisaged an ideal papal primacy which had been reformed with proper consultative processes that could be recognised by Anglicans as a universal with authority to pronounce on doctrinal issues. This proved too much for the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland Gazette complained that this was out of order because it amounted to the acceptance by Anglicans of the doctrine of papal infallibility. In conclusion, by 2000, it was clear that the legacy of our Tudor and Stuart religious differences was still echoing in Ireland. The language of the 39 Articles was seen as problematic by many in the Church of Ireland, but their doctrinal status and the absolute nature of their doctrinal status was still contested. Many liberal Southern Anglicans felt that they were an embarrassment, best consigned to history. Uh, but many of the more fundamentalist uh, northern uh, Anglicans um, thought that they were still an essential part uh, of the Church of Ireland. It was still clear that the Church of Ireland, particularly those members who lived in the northern part of the island, uh, viewed the 39 Articles as foundational. There had clearly been then a significant change in the way in which the two churches related to each other in the last four decades of the 20th century. But the history of antagonism still exercised a magnetic pull and shaped religious relationships, at least in the north of Ireland, uh, still. Without going quite as far uh, as Joshua Hoyle, many Church of Ireland members still believed that it was their duty to love God and be very suspicious of the papacy. Thank you. Thank you.